Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. My name is Neil Morrison, and with me here today is David Emmett of motormatters.com. Hello, David. Hello, Neil. We are officially halfway through the 2017 season, and on record, this is the closest season it has ever been in terms of the championship standings. Ten points now separate the first four riders in the MotoGP series. Uh, today, we are going to be talking about this, the craziest championships in living memory and also the German Grand Prix at the Saxon Ring which was held just over a week ago and it's worth saying that this episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Suzuki and the all new Suzuki GSX-R1000 Superbike. So David you were in Germany this is usually one of your favorite trips of the year uh, because you get to go on your uh, your steed your trusted steed. How was it this year for you? Um, it was it was excellent as usual, apart from the rain, of which there was a little too much for my liking. Uh, I it's about a, what a six seven hundred kilometer ride for for me from my house, and uh, on the way there, I managed to only get drizzled on. But there were a couple of evenings when I was riding home when I got uh, properly properly soaked, which was less than entertaining. Uh, but you know what are you going to do? Uh, you have to suffer for your art and. Uh, um, uh, there really is no art like riding a motorcycle, I must say. Uh, also, just just the occasion. I mean, really, this is it's absolutely one of my uh, one of my favourite GPs. Just for the atmosphere is fantastic. Uh, the setting is great all along the. I mean, even just riding along through the motorways. The motorways are all. It's all sort of very rolling, and it's through hills, and you can see castles from the motorway. And uh, uh, there are red kites, uh, which are a particular kind of raptor, uh, which uh, uh, sort of hang out hover over the uh, side of the motorway so it's uh, there's there's just an awful lot to uh, awful lot to like about this race the race itself the weekend itself we saw mark marquez uh, taking his customary pole position his customary race win eight wins there on the bounce for him stretching all the way back to 2010 quite a remarkable record uh, but this was a, a slightly different weekend in the sense that there were there were different names there were lots of surprises in there other than marquez obviously taking the win uh, yeah and it didn't look like it was necessarily going to be marquez taking the win uh, to be perfectly honest we it was uh, yes as you say it was a mixed up weekend we had sort of dry mornings and wet afternoons uh, we had a very strange qualifying session uh, well very strange but we still ended up with Mark Marquez on pole of course um, the, it was there was not really enough time to do uh, a lot of setup they, we had four uh, all of the riders because the, the, the track had been resurfaced and they'd done an absolutely spectacular job on uh, on resurfacing the track no bumps at all uh, and the track was really pretty grippy but um, because because of the extra or because of the resurfaced track they Michelin had bought four tyres which gave the riders an awful lot of um, you know work to figure out which which was the best tyre and tyre combination for them uh, and that was with, both, both front and rear right sorry that was four different tyres front and four different yeah, tyres four different rear. fronts yeah. four different rears um, uh, uh, a lot to choose a lot to choose from and uh, you know also when you're trying to do all that in basically two morning sessions then it made it very 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 complicated so yeah there was a, there was a little bit of guesswork involved in, in exactly which tyres to uh, to run in the end there were there were no problems at all really with tyres which was uh, which was quite remarkable so um, uh, Michelin did a well Michelin did a decent job at, at, at taking a guess at what they were going to need for the uh, you know for the circuit there, and of course the biggest problem at the circuit there is turn eleven, where we saw the usual collection of tumbles, uh, people 
pushing a little bit too fast through the, the first right-hander after so many lefts uh, and uh, taking a trip through the, through the gravel for their pains. Yes, I, re- I remember listening to Nicholas Kuber speaking in uh, Assen, uh, speaking about the, the, the upcoming weekend in Germany and thinking this could be a real tricky one for, for the, the French tyre company because they had obviously wanted to test there um, on the new surface before the race weekend, but had, didn't have the opportunity. Um, there were some restrictions in place uh, regarding the noise of, uh, of bikes because the circuit's in a sort of a residential and commercial area and uh, Midland were almost taking a bit of a stab in the dark. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it's hard to overstate just how close to the town centre the circuit is. It really is uh, just on an in, in the middle of an industrial estate just outside the town. And even though they're uh, bonkers for bikes there, uh, it's still uh, very, very noisy having people uh, go around there every day. Uh, this is also Assen surface with a, uh, with, a, with a similar issue where uh, they, I think off the top of my head, they have something like seven or eight what they call noise days, which is, uh, days on which they can produce an almost unlimited amount of noise um, and when you've got three days of MotoGP, three days of World Superbikes and a couple of events uh, that just about fills it up so when Assen is resurfaced and it's due to be resurfaced in the next sort of year or two uh, they're going to have a, a very similar problem but to be fair you know Michelin did a grand job they, uh, they there were no complaints and and most people sort of stayed on well they, they stayed on until they tried to go, uh, go too fast but that had little little to do with Michelin and more to do with uh, uh, wanting to win races. Yeah. No, I think when we when we go to the MotoGP race and we look at the start, it was almost as expected. You know, the two Repsol Hondas were out front uh, and Folger was close behind. And I was just waiting for the moment that Folger started, you know, losing touch with the front two guys and I expected them both to, to ride off into the distance. But it soon became perfectly clear that uh, Folger was more than holding his own. And... As we got towards the last three or four laps, it looked like he was actually in a position where he could have even attacked for the win. Um, you know, I think he caught us all off guard, dude. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the 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 place where Folger has struggled in the early part of the season is starting starting races. This is something which a lot of riders tend to struggle with at the start because you're going away, you've got fresh tyres, you've got a full tank of petrol, uh, and you have... Uh, the, the track changes after a Moto2 race. There's lots and lots of rubber left by the by, by the Moto2 bikes, and that changes the feel of the bike. And so, uh, sort of like going flat out right from the start, it becomes very, very difficult. Uh, some, just something to quite get very difficult to get your head around. Folga did a remarkable job of this. I mean, he was immediately competitive right from the start. He, he managed to stay with them, and then not only did he manage to stay with the uh, with the Hondas, sort of like in the first half of the race, but he also didn't his pace didn't drop off in the second half of the race. Which was quite, uh, which was quite impressive, and by. By the end, it took Mark Marquez uh, quite a lot of effort to actually wrap this one up because he he said, you know, it's the German Grand Prix. I'm going to the line with a German rider. There is no way I want him to be anywhere near me in the last sort of a uh, few laps uh, because you know it would have been a death or glory move more or less. So, um, <laughs> uh, but also and he's speaking uh, from experience, obviously. Uh, yeah, exactly. Also, it was extremely, um, uh, it was extremely sensible and. And uh, you know, uh, quite calm and rational of 
Folga to control his control his own emotions because it would be very easy for him to get all excitable and to try to push that little bit too hard to try and push uh, to try and stay with Marquez. He didn't yeah. do that. He stayed on and he got his first MotoGP podium, which is very very impressive. I remember there was a few occasions, I think twice in the race, that um, we were maybe looking at the battle further down the field for for fourth place or whatever. Um, we cut back to the leaders and Mark had put maybe half a second into Folga coming through the waterfall, and you thought, okay, so he's put the hammer down, and then we would see a replay. It was actually a mistake that Folger had made at turn one. I think he outbraked himself maybe two or three times. Um, and you thought, oh, so that's where the gap has come from. And then he would be right back with Marquez within a matter of uh, a matter of corners. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Basically, he was, he was catching him with half, you know, he would, as you say, he was losing out on turn one. He was basically just getting in too hot to turn one, uh, I think, trying to either stay with him or perhaps even make a, make a pass on him. Um, yeah. And... Uh, he would lose sort of half a second, but by the time they got down to the bottom, of the uh, bottom of the hill again, he was back on uh, back on Mark's tail, which is uh, again, it was just a really mature ride from uh, from Fog, a very just just very very impressive. Yeah, did Mark have something else in hand? Do you think, or was he? Absolutely, going for it uh, at the uh, at, at his maximum through the course of that race. Uh, well, I mean, I think he went for it at the maximum at the very end of the race. Um, because you saw he was able to pull a gap, but I don't think that was a pace which he could have sustained for you know twenty seven laps. Um, but it was a pace he could sustain uh, for for four or five laps, just enough to pull out uh, you know to, to to eke out the winning margin and actually uh, wrap up the win, make sure that he could uh, he could win safely. And obviously, once yeah. he actually broke uh, Folger's resistance, Folger's pace rose as well, which uh, gave. Mark that little bit of a of a gap, so it was maybe two three lap, laps where Mark was really really pushing it at the uh, at the limit uh, and taking a lot of risk, but um, he he did what was needed. He did he did exactly what was needed to win. Absolutely, um, this race last year definitely felt like a turning point in terms of the championship and the ultimate destination of, of the championship Marquez's win uh, in those kind of mixed conditions, the flag to flag race in 2016, um, really give him some some real breathing space at the top of the championship. He's, you know, this result sees him climb from fourth to first. Um, does this kind of have the similar, similar sort of vibe? Is this, uh, you know, is this now a position that Mark will just build on from here? Um, well, I, I think Mark thinks that, certainly, because uh, um, at the press conference afterwards, um Mark said he'd received a text message, I think, uh, before Barcelona, saying, um, uh, "Don't worry about it. By the time you come, by the time you get to the summer break, you'll be leading the championship." Uh, and at that point, he was quite a lot of points down. Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think for him, this is a this is a big deal. Uh, but the championship has been so topsy turvy this year that it's hard to say anything could still happen. There are a lot of tracks still to come. Uh, there's a lot of tracks where the Yamahas are very competitive. Uh, if you think about Bruno, if you think about Misano, uh, if you think about uh, you know, there's going to be there's probably going to be two Ducatis on the podium in, ahead of somebody at um, mm. uh, 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 Austria. Um, uh, you know, if Mark f f finishes up fifth, sixth in Austria, uh, like he did last year, then all of a sudden it's a, it, it's once again a, a different kettle of fish. So I don't think he has a, a small advantage, but his, his advantage is nowhere near 
the same as it is uh, as it was going into this same race last year or the summer break last year. Absolutely. And in the last show, we spoke about some of Mark's comments that he made after the race in Aston, saying that basically he was going to have to wait until 2018 to to have the, the complete bike or the, the bike that he needs uh, to, to win a championship with. Um, but we saw not only Honda's first and third here uh, on the podium, we also heard that they're going to be testing, I think, uh, somewhere near... Uh, the end of July at Brno. Yeah. Um, so Honda have clearly listened to Mark's calls and uh, and decided to to go testing, which uh, you have to imagine they've got some things up their sleeve for the second half of the year. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they have to. But again, it it seems like it, or it feels like problem is still with the engine and the power delivery from the engine, and they're still trying to tame it with electronics. Uh, and uh, manage it a little bit with with chassis development, um, but they will need to bring another engine, you know, and another major change to the uh, to the engine. Not so much in terms of sort of firing order or anything like that, but uh, ju- just modify the way that the engine responds and, and perhaps make it a little bit more manageable. Uh, so that will be, but that's a project for next year. They can't do that for this year, obviously. But what they can be doing in the in the meantime is is uh, trying to bring fixes which make the bike a lot easier to to manage and a lot easier to handle. I think it's just worth pointing out that uh, last year one of the things we said about Marquez and um, you know in the second half of the season when he was sort of managing that points gap, we said it was fine that he was able to do that. Um, with an advantage, with an advantage of what fifty points, he was he was happy to finish fourth, finish fifth, or whatever. Um, we threw the question out there as to whether he would be able to do that when he was thirty points behind in the championship. Um, but as we've seen since Le Mans, he has been able to to claw that ground back by just staying on, uh, picking up finishes when he can, and not risking it at all on a Sunday, yeah. um, like we saw in Mugello, like we saw in Barcelona. So definitely kudos to, to Mark for sort of salvaging uh, this uh, this situation um, when it looked quite bleak at Le Mans and after Mugello as well, when uh, Maverick finished second and had you know a thirty six, I think point advantage over him um, and now he's now he's up by five five points so yeah very 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 impressive stuff from the uh, the Rain and world champion the big difference this year of course perhaps even more than last year is um the number of mistakes that riders are making the number of uh, the number of crashes that everyone has uh, has made also just the difficulties it, it riders really are going from uh you know first to eighth or ninth or tenth uh, instead of you know first to fifth or first to fourth, which they might have been in in, in previous years, the championships are a lot tighter. Again, we've seen both Tech Three riders on the on the podium in in, in the first nine races. That really uh, messes that that messes the championship around. Petrucci has been on the podium. That messes the championship around. Uh, there's there are um, the. What I love about the, the 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 Grand Prix point system to get all geeky is the fact that it really does uh, it, it rewards winning, it rewards podiums, but it also can um, uh, me it also rewards consistency uh, because you can do very well as long as you're focused on you know getting results all of the time. Things can turn around very very quickly if you lose a couple of races uh, and uh, and other people get in the way. So it's it really uh, yeah it it's it's turning out a fantastically exciting championship. Speaking of things turning around very quickly, 
one Valentino Rossi was exceptional uh, at Aston just seven days before the race in the sanction ring. And really, the, the situation kind of turned on its head for Yamaha uh, in Germany. We kind of pondered the possibilities of uh, where their strengths would lie in the sanction ring. We thought that the, the new surface with the added grip would really play into the, to the hands of the factory Yamaha um, because, as we've spoken before, it loves grip. Yeah. Uh, but it seemed quite the, uh, quite the contrary on Saturday when both guys, I think Rossi qualified ninth, Vinales was 11th, and uh, there was that sort of suspicion in the air that uh, another Barcelona disaster was uh, on the cards on Sunday. Yeah, well, I, I think they, the, the, the qualification, because they really were badly penalised by, uh, by their qualifying. Uh, the, the, by the rain. The problem, yeah, exactly. The problem really was they ended up in exactly the kind of conditions which uh, which don't suit the Yamaha. I mean, yes, the uh, the the bike likes the uh, likes grip, um, but uh, qualifying turned turned out perfect for uh, for the Yamaha. Well, it turned out perfect for the Hondas because the Hondas could actually exploit the the sketchy conditions, whereas the Yamahas were sort of looking around, couldn't really make an impression during qualifying. And I think that they were badly penalised by that one. Yeah. And when you look at the race, I mean, uh, both Yamahas actually did really well considering their starting positions, Uh, you know, from ninth, uh, what was it, from ninth to... uh, Fifth. From ninth to fifth and from from 11th to fourth. You know, that's, that's pretty good going. Yeah, I think in particular we have to single Vinales out here because oh yeah, um, because he I thought he rode exceptionally well on Sunday and exceptionally calmly and maturely yeah, and almost it was in total contrast to what we had seen the week before in Aston where he was in a very similar position with he had good pace but a, a lousy qualifying he was trying to make his way through the field and he just tried too much too soon and he really yeah. admitted as much uh, in the press conference on Thursday before the Saxon ring that, that that was what happened he was just trying to be too aggressive and it was just a case of too much too soon um here i think he accepted on saturday that i think he said after the race the third was the absolute best he could hope for um and although his pace wasn't anything incredible in the first 10 laps uh he waited he bided his time he overtook when he could yeah and then he started making real swift progress and uh he not only catched sorry catched what am I speaking here? What language is this? <laughs> he not only caught Timmy Valentino Rossi, uh, but he, he passed him with uh, a minimum amount of fuss and, and was able to hold the position very, very comfortably. Um, and I thought it was one of those races that if Vinales goes to Valencia with a chance of winning the championship, we'll probably look at this weekend and say that was where, you know, we saw a, a mature head, you know, rather than the sort of uh, the, the, the frustrated and overly aggressive guy that was uh, present in, in the Netherlands. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he was, ex- he was actually quite positive all week. And um, uh, he was quite cheerful. He was. We had the whole situation of the mysterious chassis, where uh, Vinales was simply refusing to talk about uh, the, which chassis were being used, while uh, Rossi was saying, "Oh yeah, yeah, no, I've been using the new one, and it's and it's absolutely great. I'm absolutely loving it." <laughs> um, uh, but of course, you know what they're going to do? They're going to fire Valentino Rossi um, uh, for for talking about those sort of things. And it's not as if any sort of monetary uh, penalty would make much of a dent in his uh, uh, in his finances so um, uh, yeah that that made a difference I think also the um, I mean we don't know which chassis Vinales was using I mean, we think he was using the new one uh, but um, yeah it is rumoured that he raced with the new one right on yeah. uh, on Sunday yeah, yeah exactly and, and, yeah. and his, his comments also on Thursday uh, before the race um, about 
the reason why he crashed in Aston, you know, really hinted that he was racing with the new chassis yeah. in Aston as well. Yeah, yes, yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. It, it, because it he, wasn't said, he said definitive. he was a- Yeah, exactly. It wasn't definitive, but they were definitely sort of, if you lined up all of the clues, then they, they, you could make a perfectly reasonable case that he was raise, racing the first one and racing the new one. Yeah. Because he was asked, Maverick, why did you crash in Aston? And he said, oh, you know, uh, the bike um, got out of line very quickly and I was being just as aggressive as normal and it flicked me off. And then he was asked, so what's the difference with this new chassis? And he said, oh, well, you know, sometimes it doesn't allow me to be as aggressive as I would like, which was <laughs> as, as, as clear a signal, I think, as, uh, as he could possibly send without actually saying uh, the exact words. Yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. But I mean, it, it certainly seemed like he was back on where he needed to be with the chassis. Uh, his main complaint at the Saxon Ring seemed to be about uh, the electronics and the fact that they dulled the, the the horsepower down so much uh, during the year in in search of sort of like rear grip and and saving uh, uh, saving the rear rear tire. So th- that's something that they've they've clearly got to work on that they've clearly got to work on i believe they also have a test lined up for the um, aragon at some point um uh and that's going to be a focus for them and and trying to you know figure out the electronics because basically what vignal says was we were fine at the start of the year uh, but they kept on turning down the electronics and taking away horsepower now i'm really starting to struggle yeah absolutely so we're hearing about uh, honda testing yamaha testing over the summer break i think ducati are testing at Mizano. yes uh, ktm were, were testing a few days ago uh, at the, aragon yeah, yeah ktm tested aragon ducati tested at Misano, as you say but it wasn't uh, lorenzo and dovicioso it was petrucci and piero and that was petrucci in his uh uh, in his capacity as uh, unofficial, well, as as, as uh, unofficial factory Ducati rider, as it were, with uh, inside the Pramac team. Okay, excellent. Well, we've touched on Ducati there. Uh, I think this brings us to an end of the first part of the show. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with more talk on the MotoGP race at Saxon Ring. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Suzuki and the all-new Suzuki GSX-R1000. Featuring MotoGP-derived technology, the new GSX-R1000 has variable valve timing for optimal peak horsepower without sacrificing any low-end or mid-range torque. The new GSX-R1000 also features advanced electronics such as an inertial measurement unit, adjustable power output via the ride-by wire, Suzuki traction control, and a twin-spar aluminum frame that is 10% lighter and more compact than the previous model. The new GSX-R1000 also has new aerodynamic bodywork that is sleek and stylish. Be sure to check out the all-new 2017 Suzuki GSX-R1000 at a racetrack or Suzuki dealership near you. Okay, so welcome back to part two of the show uh, on the German Grand Prix. Uh, We've covered really the, the the, the fortunes of the podium men and also the the movie star Yamaha's. Um, we mentioned earlier that Michelin had done a stellar job. Uh, there were no real issues about uh, about the safety of the tyres, even though the Saxon Ring is a, an incredibly demanding track uh, and the conditions really weren't that favourable in terms of the weather and rain and dry sessions and things like that. Um, but it did seem that Marquez and Folger aside, there were quite a few guys that, uh, that basically had different approaches um, in terms of managing the tyres and also had some different results. We heard one or two riders complaining on uh, on Sunday evening um, just about the grip available um, and it not being quite as they expected. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was interesting because it was basically all all throughout the field that uh, different riders had different feelings. Um, even Danny Pedrosa, uh, Pedrosa ended up on the uh, on the podium, but he said he was fine for like seven or eight laps, and uh, then just the the the, the grip on the uh, on the left side of the tire just just went away completely, and the the bike was spinning up a lot, and um, he he found it difficult to manage. By that time, he had sort of you know enough of a um, enough of an advantage advantage to get all the way to uh, or to hold on to his podium place uh, but there were others for who it was a lot worse I mean uh, Daniela Petrucci had a really strong start to the race and uh, went backwards quite quickly um, I think Scott Redding had an absolute nightmare of a race but basically with exactly the same uh, with exactly the same issue um, yep, because it's worth saying that if, if you have an issue with the, the left hand side of the rear tyre and it, it's spinning excessively your, your lamp is pretty much ruined because right the way through from I think turn four you are just on the left side of the tire and you're kind of gradually picking up speed and uh, you know if you've got something that isn't gripping then you're in you're in trouble yeah exactly if you're in trouble with the left hand side of the tire you're pretty much done you can just you can pretty much forget about anything um, yeah so because it was quite interesting we saw early on in the race um, I think it was uh, certain bikes I think it was Alicia Spargros uh, Aprilia at one uh, instance was coming out of the final corner and he was just accelerating past uh, Petrucci's Ducati yeah and you could see that uh, obviously the Ducati is very very punchy um, acceleration is not lacking with the GP17 um, but Petrucci was just clearly spinning uh, had no grip in terms of trying to get away yeah from, I, mean, I, I, I spoke uh, I, I spoke to Petrucci after the after the race and he was because he was complaining about the the, the, the lack of grip and uh, he was almost disgusted when he said um uh, that the 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 he'd been had the Aprilia go past him on on the front straight that was just you know completely unheard of really because you know the the Ducati, is, the Ducati is the fastest bike on the grid and, and the most powerful bike on the grid, and it it, it just shouldn't be happening. But yeah, he just um, uh, he was getting no acceleration out of that final corner, and that meant um, uh, everyone was 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 coming past almost at will. Uh, Jack Miller also complained of exactly the same thing. Um, uh, uh, in fact. Petrucci was quite entertaining because Petrucci was talking about, um, uh, he said to us, well, you know, before the race, I was really looking forward to um, having a um, uh, having a break and going away on holiday. But um, after this race, I want to get back on the bike tomorrow. And all of his team were standing around shaking their heads vigorously, going, no, 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 no. So, uh, yeah, that was that was quite entertaining um well it was entertaining for us but it was very much not entertaining for petrucci whatsoever um uh, jack miller had exactly the same uh, exactly the same problem he was very very disappointed uh you know because because they th they felt that actually the performance of the tires that they chose petrucci and, and miller specifically they thought there might have been a kind of performance issue with the tire right yeah yes yes yeah yeah, yeah they thought but then you know you see what they were running because there wasn't that much difference in the in the tires being used other riders managed it extremely well uh, uh, some did some didn't it also again it, it does make you wonder whether this is a factor of the the bike suddenly feeling different after the motor 2 race because especially at um, uh, at the Saxon ring again the bikes are on there on the left hand side a lot of the time the uh, fat motor 2 bikes are leaving lots and lots of rubber on the track and the and 
you know the bike is really going to feel different um so yeah perhaps that was a fact too it, it's hard to say but they, there were clear um there were clear issues with uh well for, for some riders where the um the, the, the grip just went away a lot of riders have said said so uh, during practice they'd been out and they basically said you know after eight laps the tire drops and then after i think 16 or 17 laps the tire drops again uh, and there were sort of you know sizable drops so i think it was more about you know you really the more carefully you manage those for those first sort of like seven laps or so uh the better off you were in the in in the second half of the race okay you mentioned Petrucci. Um, it was a difficult day on the whole for Ducati. I think Alvaro Bautista was the first Ducati home in sixth place. Um, they came to the sanction ring leading the MotoGP champion at the Riders' Championship for the first time since 2009, I think it was, or maybe. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 2009. Um, Davizioso obviously had a fantastic run, winning at Mugello, winning in Barcelona, uh, a, a good fifth place in Aston. Um, but it just didn't quite line up for them here because uh, Davizio ended up going backwards. Lorenzo had a, a bit of a nightmare on the whole and, uh, and Petrucci even worse, even more so. It was most difficult for Petrucci because obviously, you know, he starts from the front row and he goes backwards. Uh, Dovizioso, uh, he, he managed his position but really couldn't make much of an impact, uh, uh, an impression on anyone. Um, Lorenzo starts sixth and, uh, and, you know, finishes well down the order in uh, in 11th even though he was not really that far behind his teammate he was only five seconds five and a half seconds behind his teammate so um uh, it wasn't a fantastic uh it, it wasn't a terrifically disappointing race for lorenzo but it wasn't a fantastic race either it was just uh it was just reminiscent of the difficulties that all of them uh were were having all of the ducati riders the only ducati riders who emerged with any real credit from the uh, uh from the race was Alvaro Bautista, who's just been absolutely stellar um, uh, so far this season. Yeah, we Bautista said several times this year that if he could get his qualifying right and qualifying in the top six, yeah, he really would stand a chance of, of being up with the best of them. Um, but this was another case where I think he qualified 12th, was relatively quiet in the opening laps, and then had a, a fantastic pace to bring him right through the, the top 10 past uh, Davizioso, past Aspargaro, and almost within reach of uh, Valentino Rossi. Uh, yeah, I mean, he came very close, but couldn't quite get there. But uh, I mean, clearly, it, it's actually it's illustrative of the fact that the, the GP16 is, is a pretty darn good motorcycle the the difference between the gp16 and the gp15 is not particularly great uh, but again you see it with the yamahas as well the the, the tech 3 bikes which are basically the bikes which uh, valentino uh, valentino rossi and jorge lorenzo uh, finished at valencia on um they've been very very good uh, in the hands of both uh, zarco and volga um so yes they they there doesn't seem to be the difference uh, between previous generation machines as much either. And the differences are getting sort of smaller and smaller between them. So, uh, do we, do we you, put that down to electronics, David, to, you know, the spec electronics uh, software that we have in place now? I think it's a lot of it is tires. Uh, a little bit of it is uh, a large part of it is also spec electronics. Yes, I think that's a, that, that's an, a, a reasonable conclusion. Um, it, also, it seems like the bikes, uh, or 
perhaps it could be the fact that they uh, factories are still sort of struggling to figure out the Michelins. The Michelin tires are still changing a lot, uh, and so you know a GP16. The, and also the the 2016 Yamahas, they were sort of generic bikes because um, neither Yamaha nor Ducati really knew what to expect from the tyres, and so they sort of built you know generic uh, the, a generic MotoGP bike to handle almost anything. Uh, and so when you get peculiar conditions, the these bikes can shine. So um, yeah, perhaps perhaps that's part of it. It's really it's difficult to put your uh, finger on to actually pinpoint it, but it's making for a fantastic season. Absolutely. Four riders, 10 points. Uh, I don't think we've ever had this situation at the top of the MotoGP Championship uh, after nine races or after, you know, half of the season has already been completed. Um, so it certainly bodes very well for uh, 2000, the remainder of 2017. Um, and, and what's remarkable is that it, it's just proven that 2016 was uh, was no one-off. No, exactly. Um, this, is, this is almost... Yeah, we've already had five winners, uh, you know, by uh, by by mid-season, which is uh, which is a very good sign for wh- what's to come. And you sort of like think there are maybe this four or five other riders who could easily win a race i mean you know crutchlow hasn't won a race he could win he could win a race um uh, and if, mer- if memory serves me correct i think this sta- this same stage last year there had only been three winners i think rossi lorenzo and marquez were the only guys that yes. had won yeah. in the first nine races so the, the variety uh came whenever we came back from the summer break and went to you know austria you know and a a few a few tracks with strange conditions, you know, Brno, Silverstone, uh, Misano as well. Um, you know, so we could perhaps, you know, who's to say that uh, someone like Petrucci uh, on the form that he's currently showing, um, you know, can't add to the to the list of, uh, of new winners, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, if you go through the races and you think about it, you know, we go to Austria where a Ducati is going to be went. Well, no one would be surprised if either Lorenzo or Petrucci won there. Uh, Petrucci's already tested at Misano, you know, decent chance they could win there. Um, uh, Zarco, you just know that Zarco is going to win a race at some point soon. The question is whether he does it this year or next. Um, there are so many, again, you know, Crutchlow is sometimes there, sometimes not there. Um, uh, I wouldn't be shocked if Bautista won, won a race either. You know, he's been, he's been that good. So there, it's, it, um, it's exciting it's interesting and it feels like it only takes a small change for us to see a rider who is currently sort of you know in leading that second group to end up on the podium or winning a race and it wouldn't take a massive change for it for there to be a completely unexpected radio i mean who would be surprised if alicia spargaro won a race uh, it's unlikely but not impossible whereas if you'd looked at uh, you know if you looked at the aprilia last year you'd have thought no there's absolutely no chance that uh, that, that the aprilia could uh, uh, could win a race so yeah there's lots of opportunity for all sorts of uh, all sorts of people, and it's uh, yeah, it's just it's just making for a fantastic season, really. Now, David, the master speaker that you are, you have seeked very nicely into our next topic, which is uh, a, a little update on the silly season um, riders' plans for 2018, because there were yet more developments at the Saxon Ring, um, and we we kind of came out of Germany. Um, knowing, having a bit of a fuller idea of what the grid will look like in 2018. And it's, it's actually quite interesting indeed because um, we mentioned Scott Redding, a real disastrous time in Germany. Uh, I was watching uh, the race back on uh, BT Sports uh, channel uh, recently because I was back home in the UK. And uh, it was quite interesting listening to uh, Francesco Guidotti, the team manager of uh, Pramac Ducati, being interviewed on the grid by Neil Hodgson before the race. Hodgson asked him about Scott Redding's future. <laughs> and uh, Guidotti gave the most non committal answer. Uh, you know, I think there was 
impossible uh, without actually saying that yes we will not be retaining Scott for 2018 his answer pretty much said as much even though he made no mention of uh, of getting rid of Scott um, it appears that Jack Miller is going to be in Pramac Ducati Colours in 2018 David a bit of a turn up after what we had been saying at Aston what's also interesting is that um, uh, Jack is actually following the same trajectory that uh, uh, Scott followed you know starting in the in the Mark VDS team struggling on a Honda and then moving on to uh, moving on to a Ducati um, it does seem basically the the, the issue is that um, uh, Jack is losing his HRC contract he has been offered a contract by Mark VDS I mean Michael Bartolomei wants to keep uh, Miller but um, uh, as I understand it or as the rumour has it it's a little bit about money and uh, you know the financial uh, uh, financial rewards um, if he is signed to Pramac then there's a decent chance he'd, he'd also be given a, uh, a factory Ducati contract which is you know it, it, it's a much more secure financial situation there was also talk that Tito Rabat could go to that Pramac ride but I think that seems to have fallen through with Miller now uh, well the rumour is that he signed a contract but uh, uh, no Whenever you talk to people, they say, "Well, you know, it's not been, it's not, it's it's not been firmed up yet. It's not been signed yet." But all indicators say that yes. uh, that he will be in that team next year. Absolutely. Um, it also appears that Alvaro Bautista will be staying with uh, Aspar's Ducati team for yeah. 2018. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, Aprilia are definitely trying to um, uh, replace Sam Lowe's, unfortunately. Whether Sam Lowe's deserves it or not is a uh, is a separate matter, but it does seem that they that uh, Aprilia have decided that they are not going to get, or that they are going to get rid of him and replace him with someone else. Um, the trouble is that all the people that they keep on talking to uh, don't seem to have any interest in actually letting, uh, in actually, you know, coming to ride for them. Bautista, uh, Bautista's official line was, well, I'm going to go away to the um, uh, go away on holiday and uh, for the summer break and then come back and make a decision uh, but he seemed to very much to be uh, preferring to stay with Aspar and who can blame him he's doing he's doing an absolutely fantastic job at Aspar um, uh, it also doesn't look like uh, uh, Andrea Iannone will be leaving Suzuki but that's more just because well that's more about Japanese face saving it's about they don't want to admit to having made a mistake to signing him um, so, and who could they replace him with as well yeah well that's, that's the other question I mean who can they replace him with I mean it might be better to wait for another year uh, wait for all of the factory contracts to be up uh, see if they can maybe get a better rider or perhaps even uh, look again to uh, Moto2 um so yeah that that could be very interesting there's also the question of who goes to if jack miller leaves mark vds who do mark vds get to get to fill his place um yeah. the you would take a guess and say but well perhaps scott, scott redding could go there but um perhaps um mark vds would you know, decide to take a chance on a on another Moto Two rookie, so um, uh, and have two Moto Two rookies uh, for for 2018. But um, uh, I think that is going to take a little while to actually sort of uh, sort itself out, and the, the, there's still lots of uh, unanswered uh, unanswered questions there. It was also confirmed during the the Saxon Ring weekend that uh, Daniel Petrucci would be staying with Pramac for another year in 2018. He will continue uh, to be a, a factory contracted rider as he is this year, um, and. A 
although the sort of technical details of the of the contract have not been released or maybe have not yet been decided, um, it would appear that uh, you know he could remain in his current situation of uh, receiving the same bike as, as Lorenzo and Davizioso. When he spoke about it at, uh, at the Saxon Ring, he was he seemed pretty much convinced that he was going to be on a GP18. He was going to be on the same bike as the factory bikes. That also works out extremely well for uh, for Ducati because it's another bike to give them some uh, feedback on. Uh, there's been some talk of um, uh, other factories also looking for um, uh, satellite rights. You know, for satellite bikes. There's talk of Suzuki uh, looking around for uh, you know teams which might want to run satellite bikes, but Suzuki can't really afford to support very many uh, uh, very many bikes, which is you know it's been their perennial perennial issue. So. Um, the thing is, Ducati are clearly proving that the more bikes you have on the grid, the uh, the, the easier it is to develop because because the more data you're getting. And I think both Aprilia and um, uh, uh, both Aprilia and Suzuki are starting to suffer that a little bit. So I, I don't think it's going to be an issue so much for 2018, but definitely 2019. You've got to think there could be a few teams looking, or well, a few teams will be offered uh, satellite bikes. Yeah, KTM included. You'd have to imagine. Yeah. Oh yes, KTM. I think. KTM KTM have already stated that their intention is to offer two uh, uh, two satellite bikes for the for 2019 onwards. Of course, the thing is, the factory. First of all, they need to make a bike which is a lot more uh, a lot more competitive. But um, considering the rate at which they're making progress already, you'd sort of think that that's going to happen soon enough. I absolutely agree with you, David. So that pretty much takes us to the end of part two of the show. Uh, we'll be back in a minute after this advertising break for part three of the show. David Emmett here. Just a quick reminder, if you're listening to this show on iTunes, please remember to leave us a review and a and rate us as it really helps other fans find the show. Thanks a lot. Bye. Okay, welcome back to part three of the show. Now we're going to uh, basically cover the, the Moto2 and Moto3 races, two very fine races in Germany. Uh, and then we're on to our normal uh, winners and losers section to round out the show. Um, now, David, this is two races in a row. We've actually had a fantastic Moto2 race. Uh, did you nearly faint uh, on the Sunday at Germany whenever you saw just what was happening, how this race was unfolding? I did. It was uh, it was absolutely amazing, and fortunately, I actually got to watch this one because uh, it wasn't. Uh, it was on before MotoGP. We were back to our normal schedule. Uh, we hadn't been uh, uh, messed around with because of Formula One and uh, the Moto Two race at uh, at Assen. I well, I think all we all missed out on because we were running around trying to talk to MotoGP riders. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was just a. It was it was a really really strong. Uh, it was a really really good race. It was really really strong race um it uh, we had a group of well four or five riders uh, at the front morbidelli Oliveira, uh, banyaya corsi Pasini. um th- th- it was close all the way it did look like morbidelli was uh, was sort of or had a had a handle on the race but it didn't look like uh, it was a foregone conclusion because we saw Alex Marquez crash out early on, then Tom Ludy was taking the fight to Morbidelli. He crashed out at turn 12, which is very uncharacteristic because Ludy's just been, uh, you know, a consummate, uh, consistent finisher this year. Um, at that point, it seemed that Morbidelli was, was, you know, off and running. He just had to nurse the thing home. But Oliveira 
really went the point uh, taking away I think it was a two second advantage and um he moved by him on the penultimate lap at turn 12 and it was just uh, it seemed it was one lap too soon yeah exactly it really looked like it was going to be KTM's first victory in, in Moto2 he was there was an interesting moment in the uh, in the press conference because um, Morbidelli said yeah I was worried that if he you know once he got past me I wouldn't be able to uh, I wouldn't be able to sort of stay stay with him and Oliveira had sort of uh, st- sat on his tail for most of the race and um or for, for for several laps and was sort of biding his time um and uh so Oliveira after Morbidelli said you know if it if if Miguel had got by but that would have been that would have been it um uh, Miguel says ah right oh well that's interesting information I shall remember that for next time um <laughs> but it was uh, it was it, it was just it was a um it was a fascinating race in 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 uh, yeah in lots of ways. Again, Bagnaia gets another podium, which well, it was his third podium, but it turns out to be his fourth podium because uh, Mattia Pasini ended up being disqualified from Barcelona, which um, sort of messed up the point standings uh, a little bit. Um, but that still is Franco Morbidelli with a very very comfortable uh, lead going into this uh, this half of the championship. Banyaya, after a couple of quite dodgy races, I guess, um, he was right up at the front of Jerez and Le Mans, and then he just uh, fell away, had a little bit of a lull. It was really good to see him back uh, back at the front um, of, uh, of Moto2 proceedings. Yes, and basically, big uh, big ramifications. Ludi's crash um, really gives Franco some uh, breathing space. I think that um, his championship advantage had fallen to around seven points after a, a rather underwhelming showing in Barcelona. Uh, now it's back up to 34. So Franco goes into the summer break in a, in a commanding position in the championship. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to uh, think that uh, Morbidelli is going to be the uh, is the is the favourite for the championship, uh, but it's it's certainly a long way from being a, a foregone conclusion. Uh, Luti is really. Uh, just been so impressive in terms of consistency as you say this is the first, you know these first really big mistake um and Oliveira has really uh, has really started to you know make a uh, make a real impression as well so you you have to wonder what uh KTM will be like in the second half of the championship Certainly, certainly. We saw that uh, Miguel Oliveira has recently tested uh, KTM's MotoGP machine as well at that recent test at Aragon, which I think shows you just uh, how highly they think of uh, the young Portuguese men. And uh, I really would be quite surprised if we didn't see him in, in MotoGP in 2019. Yeah, yeah I, I completely agree. It's, he's, a, he's an absolute delight to talk to just because he's uh, so thoughtful and intelligent and considered and everything uh, everything he says um, uh, makes sense and makes you think. So, uh uh, I think, uh, you know, is he going to be you know, a MotoGP like a champion like Marquez? Who knows? But he's definitely going to be uh, a rider who's going to be uh, 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 at uh, at at the very least, he's going to be a rider like David Chioso or Bradley Smith, who is um, uh, consistently uh, uh, you know, a hard worker, someone with very very good, strong input, interesting input, very useful to a factory to have in MotoGP. Moving on to Moto3, uh, we didn't quite have the usual 9 to 11 rider uh, freight train smashing fairings and battling one another. This was a bit more of a, of, of a wily, cunning game because we just had three guys. We had uh, we had Romano Fanati, Juan Mir and uh, Marcus Ramirez, the, the very impressive uh, Marcus Ramirez, all dicing for the podium places. Um, 
Weinmeier, very interesting. Uh, I, I have to say it was, uh, his honesty was admirable in the wake of uh, Aston. He basically sat up in the, the final part of the, the last lap, uh, allowing, basically allowing a rider through to come through. Uh, he messed that up, uh, basically allowed several riders coming through and he got pushed from first back to ninth I think by the line and he came out and said you know it was just a, a strategy error I, I messed up um, and he also said it won't happen again which I thought that shows <laughs> a, a level of confidence uh, at which he's operating um, and Mir was just uh, he, he was kind of the, the pick of the riders you would have to say over the over free practice and qualifying and um, once again that, that wily uh, intelligence that he shows on the last lap uh, came into force here and uh, he was just he was just too good for Ram- Romano Fanati yeah exactly which is uh, unfortunately the tale of um, uh, Romano Fanati's life really I mean he keeps on being beaten uh, to, to the line uh Almost every week, but not quite every week, which means, you know, it gives him the occasional victory. But um, typical race from Mir, thoughtful and clever and all the rest of it. Uh, and nice to see Marcus Ramirez finally get on the podium uh, when he's it been, been so- coming. Yeah, it, yeah, exactly. It had been coming. You just knew it was going to happen at some point. Uh, also interesting that the uh, once again, the Platinum Bay KTM team are the team which are actually uh, uh, getting the bike on the uh, getting the bike on the podium and getting providing the, the KTM's challenge. Now, Antonelli was out recovering from a uh, uh, recovering from a shoulder injury. Uh, Danny Kent was back in uh, replacing him. Uh, you know, Danny Kent has not had that much time on a Moto Two on a Moto Three bike. And so um, he still had some work to do. Ben Snyder had a decent race. Um, mm. uh, As he, he was leading. Yeah, exactly. He was he was leading he was leading the uh, leading the group from um, uh, the, which was chasing the uh, the leaders. Um, he got sort of beaten up a little bit on the uh, on the last lap, and that meant that uh, 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 Livio Loy and um, uh, Bastianini sort of got got past and, and finished ahead of him. So yeah, it's coming along, but it is interesting that it is Ramirez, um, uh, Darren Binder, and the Platinum Bay uh, team who are actually looking like the most competitive KTM's in Moto Three at the moment. Because we've seen flashes from um, from Mino, obviously at, at Mugello. Yeah, Puliga has flattered to deceive. He had a decent race at Sackstring, it has to be said. Yeah, uh, Ben Snyder has kind of come alive um, since Aston. Yeah, um, and you know you said he had a good race, but really Ramirez has been there pretty much every weekend uh, since since Hareth, showing speed in, in one form or another. Yeah, exactly. And you, I mean, if you had to put money on a, on the first uh, KTM rider to get a win this year, you'd you would definitely say Marcos Ramirez. Um, yeah. And in second After place, Minio, you'd probably say Darren Binder. Sure, absolutely. Uh, Both of those guys are, yeah. are looking more likely than the uh, than the factory guys at this time, for sure. Okay, so Mir now thirty seven points ahead of Fanati in the championship, uh, because we saw obviously uh, Jorge Martin broke his ankle in a very ugly crash on Friday, um, and that's going to put him out. Well. Uh, put him out of the race in, in this axe ring. We also saw young Aaron Kinnett crash out. Um, even though he had really good pace, he just wasn't able to put it together on Sunday. Yeah. Um, it seems that if there is going to be a fight in the championship, it's it's, it's going to be Fanati that, that will take it to Mir because the other guys have lost real valuable ground. Yeah, exactly. And you have to say that Fanati, um, you know, Fanati is definitely going to win a couple of races before the end of the season, but it's going to be hard for him to actually beat uh, Mir's level-headedness and his calmness and his coolness. So, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Mir really looks like he has the championship under control but uh, you know we're only halfway to Valencia there's still a lot of racing left certainly 
certainly is. So we're going to move on then to our final segment of the show. This is uh, the winners and losers segment. And basically what happens is David will choose his big winner of the German Grand Prix. I will choose mine. And then we will discuss who is the true uh, race, well, not the true race winner, but the true winner of uh, of the Panic Pass podcast. Uh, a much uh, a much vaunted award, David, that uh, every rider seeks to gain. Much more valuable than actually winning a race. Of course, yeah. Or that win bonus that you get from your fantasy. Exactly. Uh, yes. <laughs> and then we'll also choose our big loser of the weekend, uh, for sure. Okay, so David, um, because I am presenting this week, I'm going to give you the honour of going first. Uh, the big winner from the German Grand Prix, who is your man? Well, the obvious choice would be Mark Marquez, because he um, uh, wins the race, continues his streak, you know, eight races uh, from uh, eight race wins from pole in Germany. Um, and he leaves uh, leading the championship, which is a big deal. But I don't think you can look past Jonas Folger this weekend because uh, Folger made a massive, massive step forward. Um, it was for him. It really looked like he could win this this weekend. Um, that to me was just really, really impressive. Uh, it was a really mature race. He had a good start. Uh, he managed the race well. He managed the pressure well. Uh, you could see he was pushing at the limit, but never went over the limit. So to me, just an all-round outstanding performance and good for Tech 3 again. It's difficult to disagree with you because it wasn't just the race. Folger, I think, was the fastest guy in morning warm-up. He was pretty much there or thereabouts in all of the free practice sessions. He qualified well. Um, you know, it wasn't just like he came alive on Sunday. Um, and also bearing in mind the struggles of his teammate, Zarko, who, you know, had a bit of a... Uh, he still had a decent race, I think you could say. He had a, he had um, a very strong... Uh, yeah, I his... mean, uh, Zarko had a very strong race. It's just that he was starting from a very long way back. He was, uh, you know, starting from 15th, which is... Uh, uh, it, it gives gave himself just too much work to do, really. Exactly. But considering the relative struggles of the other Yamahas, for Folger to go out and take this, uh, take this race really to Marquez. Yeah, and uh, set was... a lap record in the, in the process. Absolutely. It was something very impressive indeed. I am going to go with someone different. I think Folger was outstanding, but my rider of the weekend, my big winner of the weekend was uh, Alvaro Bautista, uh, the fastest Ducati on Sunday. And yet another showing where Bautista uh, has almost gone under the radar as uh, just a, a really solid uh, performer. And he's definitely had a few too many crashes and races um, this season. But when he has finished, he has finished remarkably well. And I remember... Uh, Bautista's consistency really shone at the preseason, the first preseason test of this year at Sepang. And he sort of played it down and said, you know, I need to make the most of the first couple of races because the, the factories will bring their upgrades and we'll just be on the same bike pretty much all the way through the year. We won't have anything new to test. So I need to make the most of the first three or four races to, you know, um, while we're still at this level. Um, but if anything, he has uh, he's remained as competitive as he was in, say, Argentina, where I think he finished fourth. Um, and he was running really well at Aston before he crashed out. I think he was battling for fifth place. Um, and here he was, top Ducati, sixth place, came through the field, and it's just becoming customary now to see uh, to see to see Bautista there. And if you think of back to a few years ago, um, you know when Aspar guys were on that un uncompetitive open Honda, um, you know, could they have imagined that two years later one of their guys would be consistently fighting for the top six? In yeah, the absolutely. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, Bautista really has done a good job there, um, not just for himself, but as you say, also for the team. Uh, it really was difficult for the Aspar team when they were struggling with the Open Under, when they were desperately trying to find... Uh, it was hard to actually find a sponsorship for them just because... Uh, you know, the results just weren't coming. And yet uh, here we are. And, um, you know, Bautista really is uh, making a difference. You have to say that Carol Abraham, his teammate, isn't doing as badly as might be expected. He's done a, um, you know, he's had a decent job. He's uh, he's had some uh, some decent results. Yep, uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, clearly the, for the, the, the new rules are working out extremely well for the... Uh, uh, for the Aspar team and for the satellite teams, uh, and uh, really, I mean, what uh, certainly the, the, what uh, um, what Bautista is doing on that Ducati is just uh, is, is really outstanding. He's really showing that that bike is incredibly competitive. So, David, I think it would be really difficult to to not give this uh, this uh, accolade to Jonas Folger after the weekend that he had. So, we're going with your decision. This one, Jonas Folger was the big winner of the German Grand Prix. But uh, but no, uh, Alvaro Bautista is a deserved runner-up. <laughs> okay, there we go. <laughs> Excellent. Very, 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 very true. Okay, so the big loser of the weekend, David, who are you going for? It's um, uh, hard for me to look past uh, Andrea Iannone again. Um, uh, manages to crack. He was a little bit more competitive here than he... Um, uh, he probably had his best weekend in, in a little while until he fell off. Uh, Iannone really needs to get some results. He really needs to, um, you know, be consistent, start being competitive and all the rest of it. And he's just not really being anywhere. Uh, uh, Kevin Schwantz had some very choice criticism for him, um, uh, saying basically, uh, you know, if he doesn't like taking risks, then maybe he should go off and race carts. Uh, and then on Sunday night, Andrea Iannone rather wittily posted a picture of his uh, of his cart and said, "Oh, good! Now I can go and race carts." Rather sarcastic, but uh, entertaining nonetheless. But yeah, I mean, really, he needs to. He needs results. He needs. They're paying him a lot of money, and he needs to start living up to um, his potential. Uh, twenty fourth in both sessions on Friday. Yeah, exactly. Last, last of the twenty four uh, riders, um, and you have to say for a, for a factory rider, for a guy that's supposed to be leading the factory's efforts, that is just nowhere near exactly. good enough. Exactly for for a guy on a seven on a seven figure salary on a um, uh, on a bike that won a race last year, he's not supposed to be anywhere near that. Um, uh, there's lots of talk of the you know comparison between Ianoni and Lorenzo, but you. Whenever you talk to Lorenzo, you really get the sense that he's trying hard and he's working. And you can actually see it. if you go out and watch him. I stood in there in uh, at turn thirteen in um, uh, at Saxon Ring, where you can actually get up very close and see what they're doing. And you could see um, uh, Lorenzo was actually working. You could you could actually you know, close enough to to see him actually operating the thumb brake. So he's actually using that brake all the way through, uh, all the way into the corner for for a very long way. Um, so he's he's trying to adapt his style. It's just that it's taking a little bit of uh, uh, of, of time. Whereas you get the feeling with Iannone that he just wants um, them to build a Ducati for him, um, and that's just you know that's just not going to happen. As Kevin Schwantz said, every bike has its deficits, and every bike has a strong point. And you, it's up to you to find out what the strong points are and to use them to your advantage. And it just doesn't seem. This is that Iannone is doing this at all. I mean, the Suzuki, he's been living with a, a Ducati 
right? What he was used to before he came to Suzuki was a Ducati that had a turning issue. It wasn't able to turn that well. Here he's got a, a, a very nice, sweet handling chassis, and okay, he can't break the way he wants to, and you can say that he's definitely lost a lot of confidence. But there were rumors of him going to Ibiza after Assen and partying there, yeah. and it's it's just the timing was just not good at all. No. And you know, Frisch wants to come out and say what he did. I mean, those were really strong words. He said that uh, Ian on his body language was as bad as it can be. I mean, uh, I think Kevin was just echoing what we've all been thinking for a couple of races. Um, and yeah, it's difficult to disagree with you said, Dave. Yeah. Uh, yes. I am, however, uh, I think that's a it's a good nomination, David. I'm going to go with Scott Redding um, because it was it was a really disastrous weekend for Scott. I think he called it the race wor- the worst race of his life. Um, you, I was looking at the uh, the fastest laps for the race, and like Assen, uh, I think the first twenty three guys were all, um, you know, whoever was whoever set the twenty third fastest lap time in the race, that was only one point one seconds off the fastest lap, yeah. which goes to show just how close things are in MotoGP this year. But Redding was even a couple of tenths off that. He was the the slowest guy on track basically. Um, wasn't able to find any rear grip. It was just one of those nightmare weekends like we saw in Jerez last year. Yeah. Well, when there was no rear grip, he just couldn't do anything. And you kind of have to say, you know, Scott knew then. And I uh, saw, so I watched a couple of um, post-race interviews on TV, and you really felt for the guy. I mean, you know, he was close to tears. Um, he knows that this came at a disastrous time, really, because he's he's trying to find a ride for next year. And yeah, just overall, it was a it was a tough weekend for Scott because I, I really think in the first third of the year. He was he was riding quite well, you know. Um, he probably should have had a, a top six finish in Le Mans, um, his, but his bike broke, and that was really frustrating. And then, you know, from Mugello onwards, it's just been a bit more difficult and not not quite as as easy for him. Um, but uh, but yeah, for Scott to finish where he did, and then news to come out that he's pretty much lost his, his seat in Pramac next year. Um, I would have to say that uh, that Scott was one of the big losers this weekend. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I have to agree that uh, um, it's definitely been really, really tough for, for Scott. You, I think I feel, whereas I don't feel sorry for Ian only, I do feel sorry for Scott because, because you know, Reading is clearly doing everything he can to try to sort of remedy the situation. He's not waiting for someone else to find a solution for him. It's just that the, the solutions just aren't coming. Um, uh, I know I... One of the I, I didn't actually get to speak to Scott after the uh, after the race. Um, one of the journalists who did speak to him said afterwards, uh, you know, it's, at one point he just stopped because it looked like like running was about to to, to burst into tears. That's um, uh, that, that's how how painful the whole thing for uh, for him was. So it's really um, uh, it is it's a really really difficult situation. Um, you really, I mean, you know. You hope he can turn it around, but um, well, there is. This is MotoGP. There are there is no room for sympathy. There's no, uh, you know, there's no points for trying hard Diligence. but getting nowhere. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's a it's a blood sport. It's as simple as that. You either you either win or you don't. Excellent. So I think this brings us pretty much to. To, to a close of this episode of the Panda Pass podcast. David, anything else to add? Uh, no, all I've got uh, to yeah. add is to uh, thank Suzuki for sponsoring the Paddock Pass podcast and um, uh, uh, to ask you all to go out and check out the all-new GSX-R 1000s because it's a fairly awesome bike. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. David, I'd like to thank you for your company and wish you... Uh, 
fine holiday. Uh, I hope you get the chance to recharge the batteries and uh, get ready for what is going to be an assault on the census uh, in uh, in the second part of 2017. Um, but I appreciate your company. I also appreciate your company, listener, and I'd like to thank you for joining us for another episode of this show. Now is probably the best time to remind you that if you're not already following us on Twitter, you can do that at Paddock Pass Pod. If you're not following us on Facebook, you can do that too. That's facebook.com forward slash Paddock Pass Podcast. And if you're, uh, if you're following us on either of those channels, you will not ever miss an episode again in the future. And finally, if you're getting to us via iTunes, if you could leave us a review there, because that really helps other listeners find our show. Okay, so thanks very much, guys. Have a great summer break. Speak to you soon. Yay! Well done, Neil. JB, if possible, I said absolutely there, and I've kind of picked up on the fact that I've been saying it a lot. Maybe you could cut the last one out. Uh, I've just scribbled down on my my notes. Don't say absolutely. I am inclined to agree with you, David. Absolutely. Fuck, I said it again. <laughs> I, abs- I absolutely agree with you. I, I, I absolutely agree with you, David.